You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I believe with every fiber of my being, with every atom of my being, that God is absolutely sovereign. By that I mean that God is absolutely sovereign over all of the nations and over all of the individuals within those nations. I believe that God is sovereign over the decision of kings, over the decision of rulers, over the decision of city councils, over the decisions of the sheriff, over all who are in a nation and over all nations. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wants to. Do you know what the book of Daniel is about? You say, the book of Daniel, yeah, it's about visions and beasts and horns and fiery furnaces and lion's dens and eating vegetables and magicians and... No, those things are in the book of Daniel. Do you know what the book of Daniel is about? The book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God over the nations. Nebuchadnezzar learned it the hard way. And Nebuchadnezzar was made to lift his eyes toward heaven and to praise the Most High and to honor Him who lives forever, saying, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He rules over the nations. And I believe that God is absolutely sovereign over all of nature. He brings the sunshine and He brings the rain. He directs the course of a hurricane and He controls the gentle summer breeze. He is sovereign over all elements of the nations and over all elements of the nature, of nature. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. It is I, the Lord, who does these things. God not only takes responsibility for creating calamity, He actually claims responsibility for creating calamity. I have done it, the Lord says, and you ought to look to Me when it happens. He is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over both creation and salvation. He is sovereign over every man, over the minds of men, over the hearts of men, over the wills of men, over the destinies of men, over the actions of men. There is not a molecule that disobeys His command. There is not a renegade particle of any atom in all of the universe. But all of it owes its existence to Him. He directs all of it. He is sovereign over all of it. And He upholds all of it by the Word of His power. Now, I don't believe that God is sovereign in a passive sense, as if He just sits back and says, okay, well, I'll make the best out of whatever situation happens to come my way. That's impossible. He is sovereign in an active sense. That He rules. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom rules from generation to generation. And He appoints men over the nations and He puts up and He takes down. 
He does it in His timing. He does it by His will. It is His action. The hurricane, the sun, the rain, the gentle summer breeze, all of it obeys His every command. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, listen to this, and He does what He pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, whether in the heavens or on the earth and among the inhabitants of the earth. You believe that? Some of you have a hard time stomaching that. The fact that God would actually have the audacity to rule His creation and to not care whether we like that or not. That He would actually sit as King and do according to His will whatever might please Him. We're happy to receive the blessings of God that come from His throne. We're happy to receive life and health and all of the good things that come our way. We're happy when God sort of sits in His treasury and doles it out to us and blesses us. But when God ascends His throne and begins to rule His creation, it is then, Spurgeon says, that His creatures begin to gnash their teeth and to resist that. Because we don't like that. Now friends, the sovereignty of God over all things will either be a comfort to you or a terror to you. Now let me explain why it might be a comfort and why it might be a terror. It will be a terror to you if you have a misunderstanding about the nature of God as far as His wisdom and His love and His holiness and His righteousness and His goodness go. Because not only is God completely sovereign, He is all-wise and He is all-good and He is all-loving. Now, it will be a terror to you if you don't understand all of how God is as His person as He exercises His rule. But it will comfort you if you understand that yes, my God is sovereign and He is also all-wise. That means He knows the best end and the best means of accomplishing that end. And He is all good. That means that He will not do anything bad because there is no badness in His nature. And He is all loving. So whatever it is that He does, whatever it is He accomplishes, is both righteous, it is good, it is loving, and that is why God does what He pleases. Because it pleases God to be righteous, loving, wise, and good. So is it a terror to you? Or is it a comfort to you? Friends, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Listen to the rest of this statement. I believe that God exercises His sovereignty for His glory and for our good. Because He is all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, and all-good. He is sovereign, and He exercises His sovereignty for His glory and for our good. Now, Paul believed that. Paul wrote that. He has predestined us to adoptions as sons, He is sovereign over all things. And Paul says he works everything out to the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It is because Paul believed that and because Paul rested in the goodness and the wisdom and the righteousness of God that in Acts chapter 21 when he was so violently and brutally mistreated that he was able to respond the way that he did. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21. Actually, it's it's Acts chapter 22. We look at Paul's response to being slandered in the temple, seized in the temple, falsely accused in the temple, drug outside of the temple, and then mercilessly beaten in an attempt to kill him. And then we look at his response and we say, what kind of an individual responds like that? To that kind of mistreatment. 
I'll tell you what kind of an individual responds to mistreatment like that. The type of individual who believes that God is absolutely sovereign, that He is absolutely good, and that He is absolutely wise. That's the type of person who responds the way that Paul did. Now, having been brought drug outside of the temple and beaten mercilessly as they're attempting to kill him, we saw last week that when the Romans finally came in and rescued Paul by arresting him under false pretenses, remember that Lysias thought he was the Egyptian Jewish terrorist. Remember that? Who had led the revolt and then led the 4,000 out into the wilderness. This nationalistic Jew who, who was a leader of sorts among the assassins, this group of nationalistic Jewish terrorists who assassinated leaders who were pro-Rome or collaborating with Rome in some way. Lysias arrested Paul, and as they're bringing him up into the temple, Paul, or into the barracks, Paul asked permission to address the crowd. And now what follows in Acts chapter 22 is this very gracious defense that the Apostle Paul offers to the people who have falsely accused him and beaten him. And as we look at this defense, I want you to notice a, a threefold outline, and we'll read verses 1 of chapter 22, verses 1 through verse 21 together. Now this is the first of five defenses that the Apostle Paul is going to give through the rest of the book of Acts. Listen, these sermons of Paul are different than what we've seen before. They're different in nature because they are apologias, they are defenses of himself, his ministry, his message, his mission. They're not evangelistic, although they have evangelistic elements to them. This first address that Paul gives is to the Jews who have made the false accusations against him. Do you remember the four accusations? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against our law, against our temple, and he has brought Trophimus the Ephesian past the dividing wall in the temple, and he has thus defiled the temple. Those were the four accusations. The first defense that Paul offers is to the Jews who made those accusations. The second defense that Paul offers is to the Sanhedrin, the council, the high priest. And there's sort of a brief interchange there in chapter 22 and 23. The third defense that Paul offers is to the governor, Felix. The fourth defense that he offers is to Festus. And the fifth is to King Agrippa. So you have the Jews who have made the accusations, the Jewish leadership. And listen, Paul just goes right up the chain of command. Felix and Festus and then Agrippa. And eventually appeals to Caesar, which is where they send him toward the end of the book of Acts. So I want you to read chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. Just follow along with me as I read, and I'll point out this threefold division of Paul's thought in this message. In verses 1 through verse 5, the Apostle Paul describes his conduct before his conversion. Look at this. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I offer now to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now in verses 6 through verse 11, the Apostle Paul describes the circumstances of his conversion. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. 
And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now in verse 12 through verse 21, the Apostle Paul describes his commission after his conversion. So you have his conduct before his conversion, the circumstances of his conversion, and then his commission afterwards. Look at verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So today we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and that is the Paul's conduct before he became a believer, before he was converted. Now look what Paul says in verse 1. He addresses them, brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. Now I want you to picture the scene. He has been beaten, he is bloodied, he is bruised, he is probably very disheveled, probably very weak because they have unloaded everything they can on him to try and kill him before the Romans showed up. Now he has been arrested under false assumptions and because of the violence of the crowd, it says at the end of chapter 21, they had to carry him when they got to the stairs up into the barracks. So off just right at the edge of the temple grounds built into the temple structure itself were these two flights of stairs, wide ones like you would see out in the front of a capitol building in a large city. You know the white stairs and the many of them that run up into the the capitol building? This is what it was in the temple. Lots of stairs, wide stairs, and these went up into the barracks of the fortress of Antonia. And so when they got to the stairs, because of the violence of the mob crushing in around him from every side, they had to literally pick him up and carry him up the stairs. And he didn't get very far up the stairs before the Apostle Paul asked Lysias, May I speak to you? He said, You speak Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago led the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul says, of course not. I'm a Jew of Tarsus, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, will you allow me to speak to the people? Lucius is confused. He doesn't know who Paul is. Sure. So Paul is standing there on the stairs in front of the crowd, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people gathered around in the court of the temple, and he sees an opportunity to present Christ. And he is surrounded by armed Roman guards, and the Apostle Paul is on the stairs above everybody, and here is what he says. Fathers, or brethren and fathers, hear the defense that I offer to you now. I want you to notice something about his address. First of all, those words are going to sound or should sound somewhat familiar to you. They were familiar to Paul, and you know why? Because about 20 years earlier, there was another individual who was accused of the same things that Paul had been accused of, who used that defense. He said, hear me, fathers and brothers. And you know who it was? Stephen. Paul heard his defense. 
And now Paul begins his address with the same words that Stephen used. The words of respect. Look, the similarities between what's going on with the Apostle Paul and what happened with Stephen are striking, especially when you realize that Paul was involved in both events. One as a persecutor and then one as the persecuted. But he was there for both of them. And here he adopts Stephen's language. Listen, friends, I don't think for a moment that the Apostle Paul ever got over Stephen's death. And I think that the Apostle Paul heard Stephen's words ringing in his ears his whole life. You notice in this address itself, he makes reference to Stephen. The blood of your martyrs was being shed, and I was there. I cast my vote against them. I held their coats. He uses the exact same words that Stephen does. second thing I want you to notice about the beginning of that address is how respectful it was. Brethren and fathers, these are the people who just minutes before were trying to beat him senseless. And yet you do not hear one hint of aggravation One hint of anger, one word of hostility. There is nothing that you read in this entire address that indicates to us that Paul was bitter, that he was angry, that he was resentful toward these people. He addresses them with the most respectful tone. And they quieted down. But listen, when they heard him speaking to them in the Hebrew dialect, a hush fell over the crowd, it says in verse 2. They were even more quiet. Why is that? Well, there were some there who had no idea who this guy is and what he had done. Do you remember when Lysias said to him, Who are you and what have you done? What happened to the crowd? The crowd went wild. Some were saying one thing, some were saying another. I have no doubt that most of the people had no idea what was going on. It was probably from somebody in the crowd that Lysias got this crazy idea that Paul was this Jewish Egyptian terrorist who had led the revolt. No, Most of the people there had no idea who he was and what he had done. So when they hear him begin to speak, and they hear him begin to speak in their tongue, they're quiet. And they are quiet for the rest of this address. There's something that Paul says at the very end that, oh boy, that sets them off. you see what that is when we get to it. But they're quiet and they're hushed. And then look what Paul says in verse 3. Now verse 3 and everything that follows is very autobiographical. It's very interesting because, listen, this was Paul's life in Paul's words, from Paul's perspective. Verse 3, I am a Jew. Now why is that significant? Why does he begin with that? What was the first thing that they accused him of? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. He's anti-Semitic. He's anti-Jewish. He's against the nation. He's against the people. Now, Paul doesn't give us a point-by-point rundown or defense of all of the accusations, but the very first words out of his mouth kind of answer the first charge out of their mouth. He's anti-Semitic. Paul says, I'm a Jew. Born of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of the nation of Israel. Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. How can he be anti-Semitic if he's a Jew? I'm a Jew. Born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus was the capital city of Cilicia. That's where Paul was born. It was an educated city, a very well-to-do city, an influential city, a center of learning. It had a university. The Stoics University was there. Paul was, Paul was born in that city, and he was proud to have been born in, in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was born in Tarsus, Paul says, and I was brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Now listen, Paul was born in Tarsus, but at some time in his early life, as a child, his parents moved from Tarsus down to Jerusalem. So where did he grow up and spend his whole life? In Jerusalem. He's he's as as close to being a native of Jerusalem 
as you can get without actually being born in Jerusalem. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He wasn't ashamed of that. He was proud of that. But I was brought up in this city. This is where I was raised. I was raised by my parents in the city of Jerusalem, right here in the heart of Judaism, in the heart of the law, in the heart of, of Jewishness. What he's doing is he's establishing his Jewish credentials. He was as Jewish a Jew as you could be. Paul was. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, but I was raised right here in this city. Incidentally, that fact alone, the fact that Paul was raised in Jerusalem, has led some people to speculate that there were times when Paul and Jesus were in Jerusalem at the same time. If he was raised there, educated there by Gamaliel, and there were times when Jesus was in Jerusalem, Paul and Jesus could have, I think likely were, in Jerusalem at the same time. Now, whether they ever saw each other or met each other, I don't know. You can't say that. But I do know that Jesus spent time in Jerusalem, and I do know that the Apostle Paul was raised in Jerusalem. He was a few years younger than Jesus was. We don't do know that Paul was in Jerusalem for the stoning of Stephen, which was only a couple years after the death, burial, resurrection, and Pentecost. So we know he was there then. We know he was a respected leader. He was somebody with a name. He was an established leader in the synagogue at Jerusalem at the stoning of Stephen. Maybe he knew the Lord Jesus. Maybe he had seen him, heard him, but he hated him. Whether he heard him or not or ever met him, met him, he hated him. But he was in Jerusalem. Educated, literally, your, your translation may read, at the feet of Gamaliel, because that's how Gamaliel taught. It would stand up, teachers in those days would stand up on a platform, much like the one that I'm standing on, and all of the students would gather in around their feet and sit down on the floor and take notes and listen, and Gamaliel would talk. Now, this is not the first time we've read about Gamaliel, is it? And we, we, we ran into him back in Acts chapter 5. He was on the Sanhedrin, and, and you remember there was two guys brought in before Gamaliel, Peter and John. And it says that the Sanhedrin intended to kill them, because what they said kind of cut to the heart of the Sanhedrin. And if somebody, something that somebody says offends you, then I guess that's what you did in those days. You went out and you tried to kill them. So they sort of put their sights on Peter and John. They wanted them dead. And Gamaliel, who Luke says was very respected by all the people, stood up, and do you remember what he said? Brethren, leave these men alone. Because if what they're doing is of God, you can't stop it. And if they're, what they're doing is of men, then it's going to fall anyway. But if it's of God and you try and stop it, then you're going to be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel just sort of advocated a wait-and-see approach. Just keep your hands off and let it go. If it's of men, it'll fall apart. If it's of God, you can't stop it. And they took his advice. They listened to him because Gamaliel was very well respected. And it was Gamaliel's advice that actually ended up saving the lives of Peter and John. He was on the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel was the most well-respected rabbi of his time. In fact, he had the title Rabban instead of just rabbi. He was the grandson of a famous rabbi, Hillel, and the people revered him. In fact, there was a saying after Gamaliel died, they said, quote, in the, in the, I think it's the Mishnah that has this quote of Gamaliel, or about Gamaliel, it says, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. When Gamaliel died, they said the, the glory of the law just ceased. That's how well-respected this man was. Now, here's what I want you to understand. An education at the feet of Gamaliel was not something that was available to every Jewish boy of the day. 
Gamaliel didn't teach every Jewish boy. That was not something that you just went down and enrolled your kid in the school of Gamaliel. This is the most well-respected rabbi of the time. He had a strict love for the law, Gamaliel did. He was a very righteous man in terms of standards of the law were concerned. And people loved him and revered him. And Paul says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That is like a physicist saying, I was taught by Einstein. That is like an investor saying, I was personally mentored by Warren Buffett. That is like an inventor saying, Thomas Edison was my mentor, my teacher, my instructor. When the Apostle Paul claimed, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, he was saying, I had the best education, the most sought-after education that any Jewish boy could ever hoped to have achieved. Friends, this tells us something about the Apostle Paul. It tells us something else about his upbringing. Listen, I think that we can learn from that that his parents either had money or they had influence or they had both. They wanted this fine young Benjamin boy to receive the best education that a Jewish boy could receive. Strict according to the law. The highest academic standards. The best education at the feet of the best rabbi that anybody could name. Well, that was Gamaliel, and there's only one place to get it, and that's right in the heart of Jerusalem, and that's where Paul went to school, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. And he says, I was educated strictly according to the law. Do you notice that in verse 3? I was brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law. This was no liberal education. This wasn't just show up and count your hours and we'll click off your assignments. Friends, this was a a rigorous, strict, disciplined approach to the law and to his education. And the Apostle Paul had the finest education that money or influence could buy. And he had it in Jerusalem. Now that kind of answers that second charge that they brought against him, doesn't it? You remember what the second charge was? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against our law. Paul says, I was educated by Gamaliel. You're going to have to find somebody else to call anti-law. It's not going to be me. I was educated by Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers. Strictly in the traditions. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which was in the law, blameless. In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism far beyond most of my contemporaries. You had to look far and wide to find somebody who sat closer to the top of the class than Saul of Tarsus. I advanced in Jewishness and Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. He was a rising star. This was the student of Gamaliel. And he knew the high priest, and he knew the Sanhedrin, and he knew Gamaliel, and he knew all the uppity-ups in Jerusalem, all of the religious leaders of the day, strictly educated according to the law of the fathers, blameless. He was well known. Everybody knew Saul of Tarsus. Star student. Top of his class. Brilliant. And when it comes to zeal, (laughs) you're not going to find anybody as zealous for God as Saul of Tarsus was. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 4. Or sorry, look at the end of verse 3. He says, I was zealous for God just as you all are today. Man, that's grace. You know that? You know what he does right there? They have beaten him. They falsely accused him. They drug him outside, tried to kill him. And Paul says, I understand what your motive is. It's a zeal for God. 
He, he gives them the most gracious, courteous, he attributes to them the best possible motive for what they did. You have a zeal for God. It's not that you just hate me, it's that you have a love for God. You have a love for the traditions, a love for the law. You're zealous for God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They have all of the passion, all of the zeal, all of the love, but it's all misdirected. And he says, I was zealous for God just as you are today. The reason you've beat me, the reason you've done all of this, is because you have a zeal for God. It wasn't according to knowledge. They didn't know what, it was ignorance. They didn't have a, a rightly directed zeal. But Paul could relate to that, couldn't he? There was a time when he was zealous for God like that. There was a time when he had that same kind of zeal, that same kind of passion. He has the same kind of zeal and passion now, but it's rightly directed now. Theirs was a misdirected zeal. And they vented it on the Apostle Paul, and he attributes to them so graciously the best of motives. I used to have a zeal for God just as you do today. Paul, what kind of a zeal? Tell us, how zealous were you, really? I mean, when it came down to the end of the day, you say you were educated at Gamaliel, but how zealous were you for God? Listen, friends, there was not a single person in all of that crowd in the temple standing before the Apostle Paul who could have claimed to have been as zealous for God as he was at one time. How do I know that? Because who standing there that day would have gone to the same extent in their zeal that he did? And he describes in verse 4 the extent to which he went. Look at it. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. I persecuted them to death. I have the blood of martyrs on my hands. That's how zealous I was. I bind men. I bound women. I put them into prisons. In Acts chapter 8, it says... Luke says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. He began ravaging the church. The NIV translates the word destroy. He began to destroy the church. The word that Luke uses is a word that that was used of a beast that would grab a, a carcass, a corpse, and sink its teeth into it and begin to tear it to shreds. That's the word that Luke uses of what Saul did. He began to ravage the church. You want to talk about zeal? He saw this entity that threatened the law and the temple and the traditions and the Judaism and he went to task on destroying it and he ravaged it. He jumped on it, he sunk his teeth into it like a bulldog and he began to tear it to shreds. Acts chapter 9 says, Luke says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Didn't matter you were a man or a woman, he just to go after the head of the household. He went after women. Anybody who named the name of Christ, anybody who belonged to the way, that was a target for Paul. And from the moment of Stephen's execution until the moment that his knees hit the ground on the Damascus Road, he was the most feared persecutor that the church had. Everybody was fearful of Saul of Tarsus because he was ravaging the church. In fact, Paul describes his own persecuting activity. He says, I tried to destroy the church. He didn't just want to make life miserable for people like you and me. He wanted people like you and me dead and destroyed. He set his mind and he fixed his gaze on ravaging and destroying and tearing apart the faith. And I believe that if we're not for the grace of God, he would have died in his pursuit 
of Christians to the last day of his life seeking to wipe it out. I don't think he would have been content with just Damascus. I think he would have taken his persecution of Christians as far as Christians were willing to go to the corners of the earth if necessary. But he was saved by the grace of God. He ravaged the church. Look at his own words in verse 4, how he describes it. I persecuted them, binding men and women and putting them into prisons. How did he do this? Verse 5, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I got letters from the high priest. And standing in the temple, and listen, I would assume, and I think it's a good guess to say that the high priest and the, most of the Sanhedrin were probably present in the temple that day. How do I know that? Because these are the religious leaders of the nation. And this is the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost. The high priest is there. All of the, all of the uppity-ups of the Sanhedrin would have been present. And Paul calls on them as witnesses. You can talk to the high priest. You can talk to the Sanhedrin, the elders, the council of the elders, and they will tell you about my history. They know me. The high priest knew him. Now, when Paul was a persecutor, Caiaphas was high priest. He was the one that executed Jesus. But when Paul got saved, and by now, Ananias is high priest. But Ananias would have been in Jerusalem when Paul was persecutor. And Ananias would have known well Paul's history, would have known well Paul's past, his background, his family, all of that. They would have known him well. And the council of elders, they knew who he was. They had him as a target. There was a time when they had him under their employ. When Paul says, I got letters from the elders and from the high priest to go to Damascus and to gather up Christians, he doesn't mean that he walked up to the door of the high priest and knocked on it and said, Hi, I'm Saul of Tarsus. You've never met me, but I would like a death certificate with your name on it giving me permission to go kill a bunch of people. That's not what he did. When the Sanhedrin and the high priest wanted somebody to wipe out Christians... To continue what started with Stephen, they knew we got one guy who has the zeal to accomplish this. He has the means. He has the motives. He's zealous enough. We can sick him on this, and we know that because of his zeal, because of his passion, that he will stick with this to the death if necessary. And they got Saul of Tarsus. Saul knew the high priest. Saul knew the council of the elders. He knew Gamaliel, who was one of the council of the elders. And when they were looking for somebody to carry out their persecution, they had one guy whose credentials surpassed everybody else. He exceeded many of his contemporaries in Judaism. And there was a rising star that they could give the task of wiping out Christianity to, and they did. And Saul arranged, and he was, he was part of arranging and asking for letters with Caiaphas's name on it to go out and to persecute Christians. And Caiaphas willingly gave those to Saul of Tarsus. Talk about zeal. Huh, friends, you couldn't find a more Jewish Jew than Saul. You could not find somebody who loved the law more than Saul of Tarsus, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You could not find somebody who loved the temple and was zealous for the traditions and the ancestors and the culture and the customs and Judaism. You could not find somebody who had the zeal that this man had. He was above everybody else, head and shoulders. This is the man who can lead people in the law. And star set on him. Man, they had their sights on him. They gave him letters. You, you take it, Saul. You take, you stamp out the gospel. And they commissioned him to do it. Talk about zeal. 
It's almost as if Paul says, I understand the reason that you beat me is because you're zealous. But I want you to understand something. Your zeal doesn't hold a candle to mine before I became a believer. There's a couple things we learn from Paul's description of his conduct before he became a believer. The first one is that you and I should never forget the pit from which we were dug. Should never forget the pit from which we were dug. There was never a time in the life of the Apostle Paul, and even even the last of the epistles that he wrote, like 1 Timothy, he was well aware of his sin. He was well aware of his past as a persecutor. He never forgot the depth of his depravity, the depth of his heart, the wickedness with which he pursued Christians. He never forgot the pit from which he was dug. And he never got over it. And it allowed him to have a right perspective. It was because he was a persecutor that Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles. And I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm the least of all the saints and the chief of all the sinners. It's because he persecuted the church. He never lost sight of his sinfulness. He never lost sight of what it was that God had saved him from and how active the grace of God had been in his life. And it allowed him to respond well to these people. And here they are filled with zeal, beating, persecuting, and Paul could say, I remember those days. Right? You, you forget the days when you reacted with hostility and animosity toward the gospel when you thought Christianity and Christ was just a laughing stock and a mockery and you hated it all and want nothing to do with righteousness? Do you remember well those days? I remember those days well. Paul remembered those days well. And when they beat him and persecuted him and hated him, I can relate to that, he thought. He remembered well the pit from which he had come. He remembered being blinded by sin. He remembered being driven by wickedness and zeal and hatred for Christ and Christianity. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, It is a bad day in the life of any Christian when he forgets his origin and when he forgets the whole of the pit out of which he has been digged. That's right on. It's a bad day in your life, friends, when you forget the sin that characterized your heart. Or if you ever get to the point of thinking, there's no way I could have been as wicked as that. The reality is that every single person sitting in this room has the potential to be exactly like Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. But by the grace of God, there go I. That's where I would be. Second thing we learn, friends, is that there is never anybody who is beyond the reach of the grace of God. You think the Christians in Jerusalem ever would have thought in their wildest dreams that Saul of Tarsus would get saved? Imagine sitting in the early church four or five weeks after Stephen was stoned. The dirt has hardly settled on his grave and you're discussing with Christians and someone says, let's pray for Saul of Tarsus. Let's pray for his salvation. How would you respond to that? Are you kidding me? This is the man who is ravaging the church. House to house, men and women, binding in chains, persecuting, beating, punishing. This is the man who wants to kill us. Do you think that there was a single Christian in all of Jerusalem who ever would have thought in their wildest dreams that this guy would get saved? I imagine there was probably a few who were bold enough to pray for such a thing. But do you think that they would have imagined that if he were saved, that he would become the apostle to the Gentiles and write two-thirds of the New Testament books and be commissioned to preach the unsearchable riches of the grace of Christ? You think there's a single person who would have thought that? Saved, maybe, but a leader of the church? Take Christianity to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire? Come on. After he got saved, he went to Jerusalem. It says he was trying 
Acts chapter 9, verse 6. He was trying to associate with the disciples there, and they were scared of him. They thought he was faking the fact. They couldn't believe he was a disciple. It wasn't until Barnabas grabbed a hold of him and drug him into the presence of the apostles. What that would have been like, huh? I mean, you could, I would imagine that the apostles would have hit the wall, start climbing up on the ceilings to get out of the reach of Saul of Tarsus. Nobody in their wildest dreams would have thought it was possible. The grace of God abundant enough to save him? Friends, if that's true, then the grace of God is abundant enough to save anybody. In fact, that's what Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. For this reason I was shown mercy, in order that in me, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe on him for eternal life. If God can save him, God can save anybody. Your wayward child, your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your parent, your sibling. I don't care how big of a sinner they are. I don't care how much they practice and enjoy their depravity. I don't care how lost they look or how lost they may be. There is nobody who is beyond the grace of God. Some of the worst sinners in the history of humanity have become some of the greatest saints in the history of the church. Because there's nobody beyond His grace. Now, if you're standing there in front of that flight of stairs and Saul has just gone through this whole litany of everything that he has done and described to you his history, and you know that there are people who are standing there beside you in the crowd who can relate to that, and you can look at them, and maybe you look over at the, one of the leaders in the synagogue and he says, yeah, we say it's true, that's him. That's what he did. You might be asking yourself or thinking in your mind, well, Paul, what could possibly turn you into a proponent of Christianity? What, it, what would it take to turn somebody who ravages the church into somebody who plants churches. Somebody who persecuted the way into somebody who preaches the way. Somebody who, who hated Christians and sought the destruction of Christians into somebody who built up Christians, loved and defended Christians. What does it take to change a heart like that? How did you become, go, move from persecutor to preacher? How has your heart changed? The Apostle Paul is going to answer that next week as he talks about the circumstances surrounding his conversion. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that it is abundant, that it is free, and that it is overflowing. We thank you that you have the grace to save the worst and the chief of sinners. And we ask that you would help us to never forget the pit out of which we've come and that we may spend all of our time here on earth and all of our eternity praising and honoring and glorifying you for your marvelous grace that has saved sinners such as us. We are overwhelmed by that, and we are thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.